smoking here at all. Um, there's a real big <coughs> ugly ashtray in the hallway. They can smoke more than one out there. After uh, the actual program is finished, while the participants are still here, we would like to do a question and answer period. So if you have any questions, please hold them until then, and you'll have a great opportunity to get the information that you want. We also will have a reception following everything and that will give you a chance to talk with the people uh, from Bob and anyone else that you'd like to talk with. Okay, Betsy?
author of the recently published book of short stories, Blood and Water and Other Tales, which has just come out with the title. It will appear in paperback next year through Valentine's Year and Penguin Books in London. Tonight he is reading an excerpt from his new novel in progress entitled The Grotesque. Now, 
to think back and remember how during those first days in hospital I was afflicted by all things, a sense of failure. I would lie in the darkness, my head throbbing like a jackhammer, the headaches were not there thinking about, and I would strain with every fibre of my being just to lift the little finger of my right hand. I threw all my resources into lifting that pinky a millimetre off the bed sheet. This would intensify my headache to the point that I expected my skull quite literally to explode, but the damn pinky would not move. And after some minutes, I would be seized first with the utmost sense of despair and futility, and then with shame at my own failure. This was in the early days, as I say, before I began actively to accept that I was a man without a body. Later, of course, I came to terms with my condition. This was not courage, but instinct, pure instinct, the will to survive. This instinct I share with all living organisms. There was an intermediate period, though, after I regained consciousness, when it seemed to me that if I never moved again, it would be my own fault, as I had tried rather. Strange how reluctant I was to acknowledge that control of my fate was beyond my own conscious will, habits of a lifetime, I suppose. Another striking facet of this first stage of my vegetal <coughs> existence was the experience of seeing my family's reactions shift from grief and compassion acceptance and apparent indifference in a remarkably short period of time. Thus, I notice of the dead forgotten. Thus, our persons in my state rendered tolerable. But who can look long upon a creature whose one stark message is, see how close you are to grotesquery. Our kinship with the grotesque, our proximity to the grotesque, these are not matters to be steadily looked upon. They are to be shied away from, pushed out of mind. And this requires an act of rejection, brisk alienation. And here the doctors were most cooperative, for they permitted Harriet and the rest of them to reject me, reject my persisting humanity by means of a gobbledygook that carried the imprimatur of science. Science. And this was not the least of the ironies that came crowding in on me those first days of my life as a vegetable. Science proposes this is how I would live, but science also disposes. And now I found myself frozen, stuck like a fly in a web, in the grid of a medical taxonomy. My identity was now neuropathological. I was no longer a man. I was an instance of a disease. And as such, I could no longer arouse the profound pity I so richly deserved. I don't think they gave me very long to live, frankly. They knew about my ticker and its sclerotic arteries. I imagine if I'd been an Eskimo, they just have pushed me out into a blizzard, and that would have been that. I wouldn't have minded. Or rather, I wouldn't have minded if I could have taken Fledge out into the blizzard with me. Then I'd have died a happy man. I suppose, though, the richest irony of all was that the Royal Society had once again been spared my lecture. They had done all they could to keep me quiet. Now they could thank God, or fate, or whatever prime mover they worshipped down there on Cromwell Road for doing the job was muzzled, well and truly muzzled. Flaconosaurus carbonensis, it seems, would be a secret I carried with me to the grave. <clears throat> the return to Crook could hardly be called triumphant. My condition had apparently stabilized, fossilized, I should have said. I could sit in a wheelchair, masticate and swallow, defecate, weep, and that, in terms of physical activity, was it. 
I don't mind taking a sip to grind my teeth. And so much <laughs> my breathing would become heavily labored. I would snore, in fact, while wide awake. I noticed that this snoring occurred when I thought about painful topics like flesh. And hence I would snore much of the day, though in sleep, they told me, I was quiet. Such inversions were common in my life as a vegetable. At moments of vivid emotion, the snores would become increasingly strained and filled toward a crescendo of honks and grunts, at which point I would be forced to abandon my corpse altogether and concentrate on bringing my respiration back under control. Nurses would run over to clap me violently on the back. It was this phenomenon that provoked my neurologist to refer to me publicly as a pig. It was March when I returned to Crook, and spring was in the air. Spring, they say, is the season of rebirth and romance. I was certainly reborn as a vegetable. <laughs> but as for romance, there was little of that, unless you define my new relationship with Doris Fledge as a romantic. She had agreed to look after me at Crook, to perform the services, essentially, of a mother to the infant I had become. She had been given instructions as to my proper care and feeding. Harriet and Hillary travelled with me in the ambulance back to Crook. Harriet no longer burst into tears every time she laid eyes on me. The doctors, as I've mentioned, saw to that. I'd heard them murmuring at the foot of my bed, heard them drawing the veil gently but firmly over her eyes and her mind. Did I mention that Patrick Pym, a priest, an appalling man, had been hovering at my bedside when I regained consciousness? It seems that Harriet, fearing for my life, had the bloody man administer extreme unction just in case. That was not all. I now sported a small crucifix on a silver chain around my neck. I would be safe from vampires in any event. But what these things brought home to me very forcibly was that there was now no one to look after my interests. Hillary would concur with whatever Harriet and the doctors decided, having married into the medical establishment herself. And Cleo, of course, was still grieving for Sydney and not up for much. The journey to Crook was unbearable. And when they wheeled me across the driveway to the front door, there, waiting on the threshold, was Doris, looking tearful, bless her, probably half-stewed and fledged. And as he took the handles of the wheelchair and trundled me down the hall to the drawing room, I could feel something emanating from the man, but it was not pleasant. It was the aura of suppressed triumphalism. My wheelchair was positioned across from the fireplace, and I was left alone. Crook, as Mrs. Gibbon had so astutely remarked to Harriet on New Year's Eve, was a house of wood. And despite the fact that it is falling down, it retains strong character precisely because it is wood. The staircase, with its heavily carved rules and banisters, descends to the hall by means of three broad flights separated by landings. And all the floorboards are of oak, as is the panelling, which is dark and makes the room snug and warm. The doorways have a lovely shallow arch to them, delicately at the centre, and the front door is divided into studded panels. Decoration is otherwise limited to the tops of the wall panels. Around the chimney piece in the drawing room, however, the my wheelchair had been placed such that I gazed directly at it. There is some very elaborate work. It is in fact a masterpiece, a masterpiece of Tudor Lowland carving. Let me describe it. The fireplace is flanked by a pair of oak columns and these support an entablature or superstructure 
comprising architrave, frieze, and cornice, a projection of the latter forming <coughs> a mantelpiece, upon which the entire design is then repeated, the natural and greatly reduced proportions. There is thus an echo upon the mantelpiece of the whole fireplace. Can you picture it? And whereas the space between the lower columns is the open grate itself, in the carving above are displayed the arms of the Cole family, Chimera, Salient, Jules, or Sable, and beneath them our motto, Nil Desperandum. <laughs> Nil Desperandum. Since I was a boy, I felt that those words were meant for me. At times of crisis in Africa, for instance, they have given me strength. It surprises me how much solace could be had from two words. Literally, there is no reason to despair. Perhaps they matter so much to me because I have a very real tendency to despair. Once in the family, Sir Digby Cole, the elder, my grandfather, was a suicide. And Cleo, I'm very much afraid, appears also to have a melancholy past of mine. Along with her teeth and her other cold attributes, she gets it from me. But for four centuries, the words <coughs> over the fireplace, standing perhaps in allegorical relation to the fire beneath, have helped my forebears to struggle against their innate inclination to give up hope. These words have warmed their souls, while the flames beneath have warmed their bones. There is a way I have come to believe that a structure in time becomes imminent with the spirit of its residents. And to this also I may have been responding when I gazed at the chimney piece that morning in March. Strange sentiments for a scientist, you say. But as I, as I think it's becoming clear, I was in the early part of 1950 losing my grip on the sternly empirical mechanist view of nature to which I had for years been faithful. Be that as it may, as I gazed at the chimney piece, at the coat of arms, and below it our motto, something seemed to me unexpected. Something stirred within me, and I felt a brief surge of exaltation. For those immortal words over the mantelpiece reminded me quite simply that I was a cold completely unwittingly, pledged had provided me the one single stimulus that was guaranteed to brace and hearten me. For the first time in a month, I felt the spirit move within me. Perhaps, indeed, I suddenly thought there really was no reason to spare. From what I heard in the hospital, the doctors held out no hope at all of my regaining the use of my body, but I decided there and there to hope for the same. I think that quite apart from the chimney piece, just being in front again had a good deal to do with it. Familiar surroundings are a source of strength, they mirror one's personality, and in this reflective movement there is an enlargement, an expansion of the self. The serenity and the dignities of hospitalization, the extremes of mental and physical suffering I have endured, these things have worn me down, had almost at times snuffed me out, and I'd often lain there in the darkness and dreamed of death, of an end to the seeming hell my existence had become. But now, within the fossil of my frozen frame, something took fire and blaze. Yes, coming back to Cook revived and reinvigorated me, and so it was, after all, a sort of triumph. As I think back on it now, I remember being shocked at first at the racket my wheelchair made on the old wooden floorboards, how it had rumbled and thundered down the hall, me at the helm with my prowl-like nose jutting forward and my old claws clamped on the arms of the thing. But I remember too how after a moment or so the shock had been replaced 
I grew the light of my progress about my house. It was such a noisy business that my movement would be signaled so loudly and emphatically. More within earshot, I was thunder of wheels on boards. Then, too, I was in my tweeds again. I had shrunk in hospital. They were ill-fitting now. But they were my tweeds, my hairy tweeds, with leather patches on the elbows and thick flaps on the pockets so that nothing could fall out. It was a suit that had been made for me by a firm of London tailors who catered exclusively to the country gentlemen and who addressed my father and his father before me. They had since gone out of business, sadly. But all these things helped to revive me from the awful torpor to which my month in hell had reduced me. And while not a hint, not a flicker of any of it was apparent in my posture or expression, there was within a sort of life-affirming celebration underway. No desperandum, Hugo, old man, no desperandum. I was still in a state of spiritual intoxication when Cleo entered the drawing room, followed by Harriet and Fledge.
what's happened. We've been doing breakfast and Ellis-like things and Jane McInerney-like phrases, haven't you? <laughs> but you've written your club <coughs> I thought we were trying to get you on to more Tobias Mullins. You're incoherent. You need coffee. As Holland turns to pour a cup of coffee for Tobias, Tobias spies a bottle of whiskey on the bookshelf and quickly takes a slug. As Holland hands Tobias the coffee, he deliberately breathes on her. Tobias, you seem to want to tell me something. Tobias delivers. Did you break her heart? Was it sordid and sautéed in scorn? Did you love her madly from across the dance floor? Was it a cafe passion? Holland, you make it sound as if it couldn't have happened. You forget, you forget, Tobias. I know you. I edit you. It couldn't have. How do you know? What makes you so sure? Because all that's in your fiction. There's none left in your life. There couldn't be. Wouldn't you like that? I mean, you edit so that the view is always from the end of the needle, from the bottom of the bottle. Why are you so sure I haven't bought a ticket in real life? You see, it wasn't real. Why can't you be suspicious? Why won't you be jealous? Because you only think you love me. You write you love me. Holland, I label my passion for you all over the pages of this magazine, your magazine, for all the world to. 8,000 subscriptions hardly constitutes the world. The known world, then. Our world. Why do you publish them, these epistles of my love to you? Why do you publish them regularly? It's my job to nurture writers of promise, Tobias, to find good stories concerning yourself. They're excellent stories, Tobias, that's all. They're brilliant, Tobias groans. They're stories I make to, they're stories I write to make you fall in love with me. I said they're good. What is it I have to write? How do I have to write it? More passion, more ennui, more obsession? Just tell me in which well to dip my pen. In one that doesn't make you use syntax like that. I'm sorry, Tobias, but I can't edit my emotions. Not now. Come check the proofs. Tobias walks over to the desk and sits glumly. Standing behind him, Holly leans over him. This segue is better, don't you think? You're doing it, Holland. What, Tobias? You're leaning over me. Yes. You're leaning over me, holding it over me. What? Standing behind me, pressing it into me. Your power over me, my desire for you. You're amused, it takes hostages. Holland pulls back. Tobias, I like to think we make better stories together than we do, but there's a law governing the acceleration of bodies. Why can't you get into it? You're gearing up for this, aren't you, Tobias? Holland, we're working. I won't do another crash and burn edit. This is the way we work. No, this is the way you work. You crawl in here perilously close to press to go over the second proofs, but we don't go over the second who go for this obsession you have that, that informs my work, but that doesn't make it any less true. The obsession, you, I love. Tobias, love is user-friendly to you. Please just sit and go over the proofs. Why won't quiet be a professional? Let the worthiness occur. Tobias stares at the gallows. How, what would it take for you to believe me? Just just sit, just proof, just concentrate on the work at hand. 
Tobias, I will pull the story out of the magazine. I will pull you out of this office if everything from this point on does not pertain to your story and my edit thereof. But that's fair. It's fair, Tobias. Holland suddenly laughs at how unfair it is. There it is, that laugh that recognizes it and forgets. No, Tobias, we have an agreement. Holland, we have a threat. A, a unilateral agreement, then, which I haven't broken. Amelie has that laugh. In the story, Amelie has a laugh that recognizes as it forgets. So she does, a tabula rasa kind of laugh. You remember what she uses when she's one that wants to start over. Holland laughs. Yes, that's it. I do know this character, Tobias. I'll admit it. I get headaches on the overtones. It's that close, isn't it? Close to muscular writing, yes. Characters that are anatomically correct, yes. Close to me, no. I cut your favorite part, you know. But you have no way of knowing what. I murdered your dog on the fourth year. All that good writing choked to death. It was messy. You think that anecdote surrounding the gulls and quag meant anything? That was just writing by the pound. You still pay by the word, don't you? You've missed the pivot, Holly, the crux, if you think I think that's good writing. I just put that in so you'd feel useful. Writers deliberately put passages in and screen cut me so the editors can feel all purposeful. You need a reason to wear glasses after all. I cut her whole confession. Snip, snip, the big over-the-shoulder statement. But that's my best writing. Only if you like words and designer shades of purple, I'm afraid. What do you edit with, a tire iron? You can't. You didn't. Not. I could. I did. But it's universal. It's poignant. Everybody feels it. It humanizes the bitch. It's sentimental dread. She'd never say it. It doesn't work because nobody really believes Amelie can. They do. She can. Say this thing, then, that means so much to her and us and everyone. Say it out loud. Holland, I know you watch me. Where's that? I don't remember. I know you follow me at night, Holland. You watch me. You knew I wasn't at a club last night. You weren't jealous because you didn't have to be. Don't go pathological on me, Holland. Tobias, don't go pathological on me, Tobias. I go to the market and you're peeking around the detergents. I pick up my shirts at the laundry and you're huddled and shivering in some doorway. My dentist says he gets calls from my secretary asking for the dates of my appointments. Holland, you're that secretary, that agent in the doorway. You're the voyeur of the food emporium. The days of genius and madness are over to bias. They can exist independently. Artists own co-ops. Do you want the name of my therapist? Don't worry. I like it. Excuse me? I like the fact that you watch me. I'm getting very proficient in going unobserved. Don't get me wrong, Tobias. I think obsessiveness is healthy for a writer to be driven, to be inspired, to be. But you aren't content just to watch anymore, are you, Holland? You've taken to creating. You add something to the situation. Give the laundry soap a weird push 
between two men which I watched from my hotel window. I enjoy watching fights, as if I were a participant fighting my own dog in dirty battles. I don't like to fight. The two men don't look English, and their angry sounds are twice removed, male and foreign. Foreign also to the English who stand on the sidewalk also watching. They're arguing about money. One could be the other's father. The younger man shouts, I worked all day yesterday, all day, I want some money. The older man bellows, work, work, I work too, you'll only spend it on drugs. They're standing close to each other, the public scene grotesquely intimate. The younger man slaps the older man across the face and pulls a black wallet from his back pocket, which he brandishes as if it were a sword or handkerchief, waving it in front of his adversary's face. The younger man then strides to the center of the street looks around, walks back to the sidewalk, and throws the wallet down in front of the older man. The older man, who had been standing on the sidewalk as if he too were a participant in the spectacle, picks up the wallet almost casually and marches off, unruffled, a briefcase in one hand, the wallet in the other. Neither man looks back as they get farther and farther from each other, both turning the corner at the end of the street, leaving the other behind without a second glance. The fight is much less conclusive, though one got the wallet from the other, than, say, a prize fight or a baseball game in which there is a winner. It's much more like fiction. I could never do that, or haven't yet, leave someone behind without that second, furtive glance. What was that song? I was looking back to see if she was looking back to see if I was looking back at her. The street returns to its ordinariness, and the passionate battle familial or otherwise forgotten on a summer's day. It's at moments like these I relish most being away, and I'm almost happy about having been an only child, almost happy to be in a country different from her recently widowed mothers. This scene from my mother's eyes would have been edited differently. She used to, be, she used to work as a film editor in Hollywood and New York, but she started as a script supervisor. In those days, she was called the script girl but that's a different story, one I've heard and told a million times. You can't write R-I-G-H-T history, my mother would say, but you can rewrite it and then edit the hell out of it. My favorite place near the hotel is a small French cafe off Queensway, an international street filled with Middle Eastern, Greek, and Italian restaurants and shops, and a tremendous mixture of nationalities in which I feel comfortable. There's a transitory Times Square feeling to the street, not down and out, just a way station. The people who will stay here forever, I feel, might get stuck in a kind of limbo, a not London, a 
and not anywhere. Voluntary and individual diaspora is a luxury. Depending upon whether I think I deserve it or not, I'll stroll over to the French cafe for a cafe au lait and a small pastry, a small pleasure. Small pleasures could be the title of a film I'd want to go to, or a store I might work in, or only what it is now, a moment in my life. But why not, I think, title these moments in a life? The cafe is nearly empty. There's a sign outside which reads, morning coffee leading a visitor like me to suspect a difference later in the day. As I walk in, Claudia, the proprietor and coffee maker, announces we're having an English summer. It's early June, and this statement strikes me as preemptive, or at least premature. Also, it's an entirely new idea, an English summer. An elderly man and woman smile knowingly, almost as if Claudia had divulged a secret or told a dirty joke. Then they bite into pastries that ooze from all sides. Claudia is Italian, born in Bologna, a common market European. But she's been in London long enough to be a kind of hybrid, and I wonder if that will be my fate, too, as it appears to be Jessica's. Watching Claudia, I'm thinking about the English summer, hybridization, and the elderly couple who were engaged in an animated discussion about the time their currency, not that long ago either, changed from shillings, half pennies, and sixpences to its present decimal system, more or less making the pound like the dollar. Everything got more expensive right off, the woman remarks. Everything changed overnight. She recalls a discussion on a bus where complete strangers, dismayed, sought conversation about this radical move by the government. She doesn't say radical, she says horrible. Life changed overnight, she repeats, became less English, the man notes, and they both nod. Claudia smiles at me. Concepts like less English and English summer weigh oddly. I imagine a New York summer. I can't imagine an American summer, which instantly says something about size of country, I suppose, different climates everywhere, the variety of groups, ethnic groups, and my own experience. I'm not sure I feel like an American, except that I do love baseballs and baseball and westerns. A New York summer, New Jersey tomatoes, fall games on television, air conditioners, a city that feels empty on the weekend, beaches covered with garbage and bodies, heat, tension, uncontrolled tempers on the subways or streets, a fear of indiscriminate violence, the fear of violence born of discrimination, people hanging out, open windows in poor neighborhoods, Kids shouting for other kids to come out. These images come to mind almost without thinking, a rush of associations as vivid and disturbing as those from my childhood, just as personal. Claudia is small and her hands are well-formed, muscular, full of definition. I generally look at hands and teeth. She's got small teeth that look as if they've had some care. All her movements are economical. She wastes nothing reminding me of sayings like, waste not, want not, as if she were a Puritan daughter rather than a Tuscan, proud of Bologna's communist government, history, and people. I once told her, 12 Café Olay's back, that I'd been in Bologna, and instantly I was transformed into a special customer. I like to watch her. There's a precision to her like a wonderful Italian design, a small, fast car, or a lamp so simple it's profound. No doubt I romanticize Italians, or anyone, who appears to contain that which I do not. And how I perceive these abundances must be by the light of my lacks, a curious contradiction that I exist with. 
We've already discussed Hanuman Manyani and Rasalini's Mamwai Bay. We've talked about his leaving Manyani for Burma, which was, according to her, a national disgrace. I don't actually report on my, on my stay in Bologna. Bologna, Italy. Signor Mancini, not related to Henry, he tells me jovially. Jovially, the day I arrive at Pension Mancini, wears a black suit every day. His white shirt is frayed at the collar, which leads me to think business is, is bad or that he's terribly depressed. He's old enough to have not only lived through World War II, but also to have served in it. Since this is Bologna, I'm certain he was a communist partisan or someone like Marcello Mastrioni in a special day the communist homosexual newscaster that Sophia Loren, a lonely housewife, makes love with on the day Hitler comes to meet Mussolini in Rome. In the courtyard of this old pension, Signor Mancini moves from breakfast table to breakfast table, taking orders in a measured and friendly manner. He is sober and serious. I remember my father telling me that waiters in Europe were proud What's left of his hair is dirty blonde. He's got greenish eyes, small and hard like marbles, and lightly tanned skin. Even so, he looks sad. Usually having a tan makes anyone look happier, but not Signor Mancini, and not my father, who railed against the deadly effects of the sun and lay in it whenever he could. I don't understand, he'd say to my mother, how anything natural could be bad. It doesn't make sense. The arches around the square above which my hotel is located allow the Bolognese to stroll in the shade, drink an espresso, and sit for hours watching the pigeons, reading the paper, talking, and arguing. I find one restaurant that caters to the family, and I eat there every day for lunch. At least it seems to cater to the family. I am the only solo at the table, and I order three courses merely to drag things out. Soup, pasta, a meat dish, or fish, while families of eight gesture, chew, laugh, and sometimes even cry in a performance better than any theater. I'm positive they know I'm watching, and no doubt they feel sorry for me, all alone in a beautiful city, a seniorina without a senior or bambina. Or maybe they think I'm a widow or divorcee. On different days, I try to act differently, eat with downcast eyes, or eagerly read a book or newspaper. I don't like reading the Herald Tribune in public anymore. The restaurant owners expect me by now, and there's a flourish when I walk in. The maitre d' waves his table napkin, and I enter. This is one of the reasons I go there. I need a sense of order and a sense of being known. The familiar, I discover, is readily available, can be constructed quickly, merely by returning to the same place more than twice. Two times can be chance. Three times is habit. Maybe, maybe monogamy got started in just this way. I know people who never want to go to the same restaurant twice. One, a man, is never monogamous, can't seem to be. The other, a woman, loves eating well and can be monogamous, but expects men not to be. I hope they never get involved. Pondering this, I roll the spaghetti onto my fork. I'm still not sure if I'm eating it correctly, but my efforts cannot go unnoticed by my hosts and the other diners. Signor Mancini is behind the desk when I return from lunch a little drunk. I ask for my key, and when he hands it to me, our hands touch slightly. You have a letter, Signorita, he says soberly, and I wait for a death sentence. It's from my mother. 
Mia Mama, I tell him, satisfied with what I think is his curiosity. Ah, he says, and pats my hand, this time deliberately, and points above the desk to a picture of a small, rotund woman. Mama, he says sadly. I wonder if I'll ever have a desk with a picture of my mother prominently displayed above it that I'll point to and say, Mama. I think of cloth monkey mothers, dummies, and baby dolls. Saying Mama in Italy resonates, not at all like saying it anywhere in America. There's no prevailing sympathy behind it. There was, I remember Mama, but that, I smiled to myself, was in television's infancy. I placed the letter in my pocket, say grazie meaningfully, and retired to my tiny room where I read my mother's letter asking me when I'm coming home and listen for a good part of the night to cats in heat and an argument in Italian coming from the square. When Claudia asks me about Bologna, if I visited such and such, I have to say no. I took walks, I say. I looked in store windows. So many shoes. We make shoes in Bologna, she states, and with her hand slices the air for emphasis. I think of more Italian films and passion and how she impossibly resembles Monica Vitti and Vittoria Gaussman. I think of her lover who's Irish and has a wife. I think of the Irishman at the hotel who works behind the desk. Does he have English summers? I stare as Claudia empties cups and cleans the table where the elderly couple were just sitting. I feel that I must regain her respect. I say, I stayed at the Pension Monsignor. A gray eye shift from right to left. Do you know Signor Mancini? Yes, Claudia says. She tells me her mouth a downward curve that everyone knows the Mancini's at home, a casa, that the family was once rich and important. The pension was in fact once their home. Then the war came, brother fought against brother. Which side was Signor Mancini on? <coughs> Sorry, on the one I know. He was a fascist, he says. After the war, he spent time in jail. They never spoke again. Then the brother died. And his mother, I a saint. Claudia crosses herself. Mama Mancini died years and years ago. She never really recovered. Walking on Queensway, I'm carrying a container of hummus and a bag of tomatoes. I like the way they sell tomatoes here, hard, ripe English tomatoes. Hand-lettered signs or shouts from the people hawking them, women and men with bright red swollen hands. I imagine Claudia and Jessica meeting. I don't think Jessica would be taken by Claudia the way I am, or perhaps I don't want her to be. Actually, I don't want to get to know Claudia better. There's a perfection to the incomplete way in which we know each other. Should I have known, have guessed about Signor Mancini, I wonder, as I stare at the wallpaper in my hotel room? This wallpaper, worried in my apartment at home, would drive me crazy. But here it doesn't matter. Like not being bothered by a city council election we couldn't vote in anyway. It passes right by, and I'm unencumbered, clipping my toenails and placing the small, hard pieces in the ashtray that reads Inverness Terrace. Small, hard pieces of American toenails. Americana of the sort. Some people might burn them. I love the way Claudia says chow. Jessica's at my door. She's found a place to live and will leave our home away from home, her safe place from Charles. She once described her, her previous flat as having too many ghosts, a not unusual thing to say, except that she believes in ghosts the way she believes in angels. In fact, a ghost to her is an angel without a resting place. Today's Guardian has a paragraph on angels. The Vatican says they exist. 
Jessica isn't amused or, su or surprised. Her small, sharp eyes, the eyes of a knitter, my mother would say, find their way into some secret part of me. She thinks that, and I'm beginning to believe her. Jessica also believes that no one should have any secrets and that everyone knows all secrets anyway. To her, nothing is secret. Everything is sacred. Moving from one street to another, or one city or country to another, requires just about the same amount of energy. And when Jessica left the hotel, I decided to return to Amsterdam and to hold my London life in suspension, a bit of fluff caught in a solution, or hold my life in suspense, if, if suspenseful could be used to describe my life in London. Certainly life is filled with everyday mystery. We're given answers to questions that answer nothing, and no doubt life goes on without me, and things don't remain the same, but can I ever know that? This question, like so many others, being insoluble, I boarded the boat train for the Hook of Holland and was violently ill on what's considered a mild crossing. My father was also prone to seasickness in calm waters, though this is hardly comfort when you're collapsed in a gray toilet. And why should being like someone else be comforting anyway? I'm often amused at how I or others bring arcane tidbits into conversation for reassurance that on further reflection should not be. On the train to Amsterdam from the hook, I sat in a compartment with other foreigners, one a Pakistani man, one an English girl of 17, one a Belgian man, all of us headed in the same direction for different reasons. The Pakistani and I engaged in one of those fitful conversations in which neither is able to make clear what one wants to say. Finally, we stood in the compartment passageway and talked about the neon lights on buildings, that blaze of created energy that gives color to our nights. Beauty, he said to me, artificial beauty. Yes, I agreed. Why, he said, are you not married? I don't want to be. Ah, he said, scrutinizing me. Then may God be with you. I thanked him. The rest of the journey, he and I were noticeably silent, as if something portentous had occurred. When we detrained at Central Station at dusk, the Pakistani shook my hand seriously and I bowed slightly, an atomistic <coughs> gesture that brought Charles to mind, but one just as grave as his handshake. With a doleful expression, he took his leave, and I'm sure he watched me throw my bag into the taxi and shook his head, certain I was meant for tragedy. Amsterdam doesn't seem a suitable place for tragedy, but place, the city for instance, is as much a mental space as a physical one, and its physical boundaries, its history, are much less concise than any term such as city might lead one to think. Am I headed for tragedy, I wonder, as the cab driver brings me to the Four Generations Hotel? And are conversations with strangers necessarily uncanny? They give me the same room. It still doesn't have a television, and I'm embarrassed to ask for one. The breakfasts are also the same, which pleases me enormously. Eat the same thing every day and you won't go mad, also said to me by the friend who insisted upon keeping a diary for the same reason. I think I understand why so many English plays take place in the breakfast or sitting rooms of hotels. Apart from the cheapness of their production, any aggregate of people drawn or thrown together and involuntarily in each other's company poses dramatic possibilities. It's not that you expect anything very fantastic to happen. The American woman called Joy is not going to do a strip in the breakfast room. 
The Englishman called Pete is not going to sing an aria just because he feels like it. The German Gregor will not fall to his knees and confess some terrible crime. There will be no orgies. We are all remarkable for our constraint. If something like that did happen, if Olivier, the Frenchman, exposed himself to me in front of my fellow diners, the course of playwriting would have been altered, as with the site of the hotel. And I would not now be playing at eating this raisin bone, or crenton bone, in the breakfast room. I'd be in a state beyond words, blood racing, or I might be laughing nervously. Olivier merely smiles at me, a sly, guarded slash of a grin, throws his book, Truffaut on Hitchcock, into his leather satchel, pushes his wire-rimmed glasses up onto the bridge of his nose, and strides past me, brushing against my arm ever so slightly. Why do I feel I've seen this scene before? And will I end up in bed with him? Is my life as predictable as it sometimes appears? Thank you.
sent Bomb Magazine products, and it probably wouldn't have gotten finished uh, without Betsy's encouragement and uh, willingness to serialize it, because unless I had a deadline, I probably would have just stopped at about the point I wrote this. Um, On the answer machine, uh, a message from Victor. I, I sound very strange to myself in this ear. I don't know how Gary, it's because of this speaker. It's this oh, speaker. Okay, okay. okay, so that's what it is. You're, you're fine. <laughs> I didn't see the second speaker. Uh, on the answering machine, a message from Victor who tells me when I call him that Paul, my lover for two years before I met Alexis, is sick. There's a special tone of voice now for illness that marks the difference between <coughs> sick and dying. I've heard that he's sick. And so this body whose secret parts were my main pleasure in life for longer than anyone else's transforms itself into a fount of contagion. Paul passes over into the territory of no longer quite alive. And I calculate that if he got it five years ago, the general incubation period, he must have been infectious on each of the 50 or 60 occasions when we slept together, giving me a much better than average chance of being infected. He wants to see you. He's asked for you. I haven't seen Paul in over a year. One day I saw him on the street with a man he's been living with, a tall, gangly man, whereas Paul has a rugged, packed look about him that face, the map of Macedonia. We said hello, goodbye, very pleasantly, and I considered that if he hadn't had a continual need to fuck all over town, we might have moved in together and had a normal relationship, whatever that might be. He liked having someone at home waiting for him. I could never wait for people. He came back from abroad and his roommate found him the next morning bleeding from the mouth. Maybe it's because we didn't love each other that we broke off without any rancor, without even really breaking off. We met every three or four nights in the corner bar the one near my house where I still sometimes drink with Victor. Paul and I never made dates or anything, and some nights we saw each other there but went home with other people. Paul didn't feel like doing it with me. He would say, let's get together real soon. How long has he been sick? We stopped sleeping together when people still referred to get cancer and thought it came from using poppers. For a long time, I moved back and forth from Europe. Each time I returned, the thing had become more of a subject. I heard this one and that one getting pneumonia and fading out. Paul said once, it's getting scary. It's getting close. He met Jason years ago, and they made it up once in a while. Paul told me when it wasn't you, it usually was him. And then he and Jason moved into Cornelius Street signing a joint lease, which was practically marriage. They've had him in the hospital for two weeks. At first, the people who died were people I hardly knew, were people from earlier lives who'd been in a lot of the same rooms. Their deaths were disconcerting, but seemed to happen on a distant planet. At first, people would say, well, he must have been leading a secret life, taking all kinds of drugs and going to the mine shaft. Because at first, most people who got ill did seem the same ones who never finished an evening at 4 a.m., piled into taxis together in the regular bars. Plus. And then, of course, there was this other thing, the needles that had spread by blood and sperm. People whose needles would naturally get it. The worst thing is, I can't feel anything to the 
well, I'm too scared for myself, but you go see in my book, of course I will. Except that I am in this particular business a bigger coward than I'd like to be. Victor and I used to drink with Perkins when Perkins turned up in the bar, and Perkins got ill. I didn't go to the hospital. He had one bottle of pneumonia and now familiar remission. And Chaz, who was in the building behind my building, called raising money to get Perkins a color TV since he had to stay in all the time, and I never gave that promise to him. In the early autumn, one mile afternoon, I saw Perkins at Astor Place looking all of his 54 years, which he never had previously. He said, Call me sometime. And the next I heard, it went into his brain, and they brought him to St. Vincent's Raven. Victor went four or five times and said, My God, Victor, what did he say? The thing is, Victor said, when he feels all right, he doesn't feel as if he's dying. The worst thing is acting morbid and stricken about it. You just go have a normal conversation with him. It's too late now because he isn't lucid for more than a few minutes during any given visit. At first, he's his old self, and then he babbles. I never thought I'd be so chicken shit about anything. But this new situation with Paul, what does it mean? With Gregory, another thing about Perkins, he had for a time a comely Irish owner named Mike, a slender boy with soft brown eyes and a small wisp of mustache. They were together for a while and then they weren't. Mike fucked everything that walked. And one night we found ourselves using the toilet in Nightbirds and it was still an after hours joint. I let him piss in my mouth. Then we screwed at my place the whole next day in every conceivable position. He called a few days later and warned me his doctor thought he had hepatitis B. As it happened, I just had a typhoid shock from my visa to Thailand and got a bad reaction. My pee turned red. Then it passed on. Mike found just before I left to say his results had been negative. Mike moved to California and Hawaii for several months, and when he came back, he lived with Perkins again. But soon after that, he started looking spectral and then stopped going out, and then everyone heard that he had it. And a few months later, everyone heard that he died. That was four years before Perkins came down with it, and when Perkins came down with it, he told everyone he was sure he got it from Mike. Though how per Perkins could be sure, since Perkins took it up the can as often as possible from anyone available, was a mystery. Yet he insisted that Mike had been the source. Until now, Mike has been the only person I know I slept with who later died from it. And I used to think because I recovered from the typhoid shock, which I got after I slept with him, that meant I hadn't caught it from him. And I also rationalized that maybe Mike caught it in California, Hawaii, and then gave it to Perkins when he moved back to New York, in which case Perkins' incubation period may have only been a year or two, rather four years. I keep getting dates mixed up. I went to Thailand in 81, and I think I'd already stopped sleeping with Paul. So if I didn't get it from Mike, possibly I didn't get it from Paul either. But with Mike, I could only go exposed once. And some people think that repeated exposure is necessary for the virus to take hold. So if it had been only Mike, I could now feel fairly confident. Though how could anyone who ever did anything with anybody feel at all confident? And with Paul, of course, the case is very different. His dong has been in every hole in my body, hundreds of times squirting away like a shreddy fountain. I've ridden him too, and once when he cut his finger chopping up some terrible cocaine bomb the spike and sucked his blood. Now, of course, everyone's conscious about the problem. <laughs> but, as somebody said in the paper, the horses are out of the barn. How can you possibly know if back in the days of unfettered casual screwing, someone you met by chance and screwed and never saw again wasn't a carrier? Not that I had so many in the last years, but they don't really know if numbers are important. Even if I don't have it, I probably have the antibodies. And if I have the antibodies, I'm probably a carrier. So if I go with Gregory, I risk infecting him. And then I don't know about Gregory either. He says he hasn't taken heroin in five years, but junkies who do actually manage to kick 
Usually you knock off several times before they get off, but maybe five years isn't so precise. In addition to that, Gregory looks like a magazine cover. I can't imagine he hasn't satisfied all his sexual appetites regularly. In fact, he's alluded to very dark periods in the past, hinted that when he used drugs, he was not hustling here and there. He's so well-spoken and smart, hard to imagine peddling his dick on the street, but who knows what people were doing. Anyway, I threw myself out, and now in less than a second after seeing their face, I'm shy. There must have been hundreds of opportunities, thousands. Victor says he'll go with me to see Paul. I realize that I really am in love with Gregory. These have to be peculiar times. He's lying in the darkness of his own bedroom, a plywood cubicle within his vast loft near the southern tip of the island. He's talking into his cordless telephone, which gives local calls the scratchy echo of long distance. We live in large and small boxes and buildings on regularly shaped streets. We see each other seldom because we are busy. Nothing happens to us except dinner parties and visits to the dentist and work. Our lives have the generic flavor of deferred pleasure and sublimation until we fall in love or die. M is 36, rich, successful. He's a closer friend of Victor, but I haven't been in his apartment for years. When you're busy, you use the telephone. Contamination, he says through the phone crackle. Like water, I say. Water, blood, bottoms, bit, urine, semen, any kind of fluid, it's all in the food chain, and declares. You have to imagine particles like from Chernobyl settling into the water table like little dissolving snowflakes. They sink into the ground when it rains, go into the water, everybody drinks it. Some people get a little bit, some people get a lot. Or maybe it gets eaten by a cow or a pig. It grows into grass and some swine store it up in their tissues. And then you pop into the local deli for a ham sandwich with a little mustard on some nice rye bread. Pressed by you've got eggs. And what if I die right away instead of later on? For if, for instance, I take the blood test, it's, it's positive. I'll never finish Burma. Title to change. Uh, I won't be leaving anything behind, or just a few things of no historical interest. On the immortality front, I will fail. Ashes to ashes, and no health insurance. I'll become a ward of the city and be put in one of those wards where the doctors and nurses shun you for fear of catching it. None of your friends comes to the hospital. Libby would come, Em would come, Victor would come, my friend Jane would definitely come, but how would I die? What would I be like? And how would Goober is for them? If it's a big war, there's bound to be others dying in the same room, dying with the television on. Perhaps they make them wear earphones, but with a war that deathly quiet at night, I hear little bug noises in their earphones. Was that the point to leave something behind? It really is a thick ambition of your dead. What difference does it make? Of course, they say it's why people have children. They can remember you for a time, though mainly they remember pain, pain from their terrible childhoods. <laughs> even if their parents love them, it's usually so twisted it's as bad as hate. And even when it isn't, the other children torture you and make fun of all your little quirks and abilities. You try to escape into fantasies, but those are poison from the very outset. While you're still in first grade, they've already turned you into a monster. You spend your whole adult life trying to wipe out all the things they taught you to do. <laughs> I never tell about my childhood because I only childhood because I only remember pain. <laughs> and then I keep meeting people like Gregory who think they're as they are because of the father, because of the mother. He seems so clear about it. My father did this to me, my mother did that, therefore I am. I don't know what either of my parents did. My mother says she regrets slapping me too often. I can't remember ever being slapped. <laughs> Maybe she remembers wrong. When you go into psychotherapy, they teach you to invent false memories of childhood beating 
abuse and sexual abuse. <laughs> People become addicted to these simple explanations of why they're monsters. And now everyone is going to die before they figure anything out. I'm going to die before I can be truly loved. I'll die with every sort of bitter memory of Alexis's coldness and Paul's faithlessness, though really that didn't matter with him. I'm not bitter against him. Why couldn't I have what I had with him with somebody who loved me? <laughs> and I'll die before I can make Gregory love me. I can see I'm fated to cash it in without a single memory of real happiness. What is real happiness? Is it this business of living with another person? I never really lived with anybody. I thought no one could stand it. You think you'll have a long life, so you do everything at a snail's pace. I tried to write Burn. I tried to write a book about family. One was a sister who was a socialite. Another was crippled in a wheelchair. The brother was a fag actor and off-Broadway. The parents had been murdered in a townhouse. I only wrote two scenes of that book. The sister in bed with her boyfriend and the brother getting drunk on the set of a soap opera. Not bad. Oh, yes, in one scene of the sister racing through the townhouse in her wheelchair. She's got special ramps built so she could get around. Before that, I tried something like a love story based on me and that California surfer type I fucked a few times when I lived in Boston, a shoplifter. Nobody shoplifts anymore. I remember when everyone did it. It showed your contempt for the capitalist system. Everyone worships capitalism today. Look at this obscene medical system. If Paul doesn't have insurance, he's probably in a room full of other people's contagion. They say the patients with AIDS go to the slump that are perfectly healthy and pick up diseases in the waiting room. It's how Michael got pneumonia. I almost forgot about Michael. His apartment windows used to be right there. The windows still are there, but he's dead. <coughs> Maybe I'm dying anyway faster than others because I smoke so many cigarettes. I try and try quitting and nothing works. I can lay awake at night telling myself, you will not smoke a cigarette tomorrow. Your body doesn't want you to smoke. When you go to the hypnotist, he makes you close your eyes and tells you your brain is going down a steep flight of steps. That you're on an elevator going down, down. down deep down into the hypnotic state, it sounds like a car salesman. <laughs> and when you emerge from hypnosis, he says, you will have no desire for a cigarette. All cravings for a cigarette will have left your body, and whenever you feel a temporary urge for a cigarette, you will tell yourself, I need my body to live. <laughs> the impulse only lasts for 90 seconds, he says. After 90 seconds, you will no longer crave a cigarette. I ought to go back because I did stop for six hours, thinking the whole time I'm a non-smoker now. <laughs> Since telling myself I'm a non-smoker now was one of the hypnotic suggestions, and even while I smoked the first 10 cigarettes the same night, I thought, I'm a non-smoker now. <laughs> they say if you're infected and have the antibodies, you might not come down with the fatal syndrome. Therefore, you should build up your immune system, which I'm tearing down with cigarettes and alcohol. Sometimes I drink nothing for weeks, and then for the reasons I've never figured out, I'll get drunk at a party and then drunk again the following night, sometimes for as many six or seven nights running and stopping, and though I never stop smoking, I wake up wanting a cigarette, it's crazy. But then again, Perkins went into AA two full years before getting ill and stopped smoking. At the same time, he began looking wonderful, his skin all clear, the bags around his eyes banished. He'd always been youthful anyway, but then he became spectacular again, young again, and immediately got sick. And Michael, the same story exactly, he gave up drugs and alcohol and cigarettes, toned himself up at the gym. 
ethereal,ized himself like some ideal sex object, but without screwing around, because even then he was frightened of catching it. Perhaps a year passed before Michael's glands mysteriously swelled up. He woke one day in a high fever. They treated him at St. Vincent's for pneumonia. He recovered. Then I saw him out and around. He said he felt normal. And the only thing different was you suddenly know that anything can kill you. I despised Michael, but near the end he wrote this hilarious story about assholes laughing right to the grave about the whole business, which I can't help respecting, really. He died his own particular death without any pietistic nonsense or feeling of solidarity with anything, least of all the social contract. He had a good time while he was here, lots of laughs, plenty of weird scenes. His one full-length film, which somebody somewhere has, Michael didn't want much in life besides kicks. I don't think death found him with a lot of plans pending for the future. Whereas Paul, this can't possibly feel natural to him. Something further, quite a few th things further was supposed to happen. He's always got an acting work, always a play, a movie, something, never a starring part, but it would have happened eventually. Michael had had plans once upon a time, but then his wife went through a windshield on the Ventura freeway. After that, Michael wanted a good time and eons of forgetfulness, but at the very least, he must have wanted to live. Life doesn't care about what anybody wants. Thank you.